We took a camping trip to Colorado. We took the teen boys out and we were going to spend a week out just living in tents and cooking our own food and living off the land. Well, not really. We brought our own food with us and stuff, but you know what I'm talking about. And it was my first time ever going camping and it was my first time going west of Iowa. So it was a little bit of a unique experience for me, but I had a lot of fun and we were really excited to get to see the Smoky Mountains. We stayed in Estes Park and we were up on some elevation. Our camping site was there. And the youth pastor who was leading the camping trip was a um, reserve duty army member. He was a sergeant and he'd done a couple tours in Afghanistan. So he had some experience just in the military. He also had a lot of experience with camping. Most of the equipment that we needed, he already owned. And so he packed all of that himself. Needless to say, I lived in, you know, the city of Danville. I didn't go to the mountains at all. I'd never been camping before. I trusted him to guide us and show us where we needed to go when we were camping. So he wanted to take us on this hike. It wasn't all the way up a mountain, but it was kind of around a mountain. It was like four or five miles, and he said we'd be able to do it before lunch, and the guys could say that we did this trail together. And so we started walking, and we faced some elevation, and we kept walking, and yeah, we drank a lot of water because that's what you're supposed to do when you're hiking like that. And we got to the point where he said, okay, we're about a mile away and then we'll stop and eat because we were starting to get hungry. And so we kept walking and walking and I thought, well, I know it's elevation, but this seems like a lot more than a mile. We kept going and I thought, I've seen this tree before and I've seen these rocks and this you know, view of the mountains from here. We're going in circles. And what we ended up doing is going in circles for hours trying to find our way to the end of the trail. And I said, well, don't you have a map with you? And he said, oh, yeah, I could probably get that out and figure out where we're going. He'd not been really using the map. And we spent we took what was supposed to be a couple hours, you know, two hours, three hours, maybe. We turned it into like five or six hours before we finally reached the site that we were going to. After all of that, we went back to the campsite and Pastor John told the teens and told me, he said, well, you guys just got to trust me on this. And I said, I've been trusting you. It led to me wandering around the mountain for hours trying to find out where our campsite is. And the point of that is that sometimes when you're told to trust someone or to trust someone's plan or trust especially God's will, sometimes you feel like that. Well, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know where we're going. It seems like we're just going on and on and on without any direction. But unlike Pastor John, who got us lost on a camping trip, and I still remind him of that because he takes great pride in his ability to hike and camp and things like that. Um, unlike him, we can trust the plan of God. And what we see in this text is that Paul is remarking about the plan of God, the will of God in his life as an apostle, as a servant. And the point he's going to make is that it's why he's in prison. Paul wasn't writing the book of Ephesians from some lofty place or from a place of comfort, he was writing it in chains. And we talked about that a little bit last week, how he's a prisoner not just of Rome or of Caesar, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And in all the twists and turns that you see in Paul's life, he was persecuted, he was beaten, he was in prison. There was one point where they pretty much just left him for dead. I mean, they left him outside of the city and they stopped beating on him because they thought, well, he's got to be dead. And then he just got up and shook off his clothes and went on to the next city preaching. He went through a lot in his ministry, yet he knew that he was following the will of the Lord and the plan of God. 
And sometimes the plan of God is difficult to comprehend. God brings trials and sufferings into our life. We know that's common. That's going to be something that happens in the lives of believers. Now, some people's trials and sufferings are more than others. You start to think about, well, this person went been through way more in their life than I have. Well, that might be true. But God tests people in different ways. Sometimes God puts tragedies in our life, and that causes us to question God's will and God's plan. Sometimes God puts difficult people in our lives, and we have to learn how to interact with them and adapt to them. And when we're following the plan of the Lord, it can be easy to get frustrated. It can be easy to lose heart and to doubt the sovereign plan of God. When that happens, we can trust that God's plan is perfect, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are better than our ways. We can trust the Lord, not just when circumstances are favorable, but even when things are unfavorable as well. So what we want to see today is that in the difficult circumstances of life, we can trust the glorious plan of God. We can trust the glorious plan of God. And we're going to look at three reasons why we can do that this morning. First of all, we're going to, we can trust the glorious plan of God because God is the one who calls his servants. God is the one who calls his servants. As we've been in the book of Ephesians, we've been looking at the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel given to not just the Jewish people, but the Gentile people as well. And we're going to see here that Paul's mission, his calling was to proclaim the mystery of not just to the Jews, but to the Gentile people as well. Now, all of this from verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 13 of chapter 3 is this detour that Paul is taking us on. Remember, he starts in verse 1. He wants to pray for them. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, he wants to eventually get to verse 14, where it says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And there he's going to start praying for the Ephesians. But as he's starting this prayer, he becomes so overwhelmed with this request, with this thought that the Gentiles need to understand the mystery of the gospel, that he breaks off and he starts explaining to them this mystery. And we talked about it last week, how the mystery is the fact that the Gentiles and Jews are now co-heirs with Christ. So they have been saved by the gospel But we can also see that the mystery can be summed up in a person, and that is Jesus. We talked about the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Jesus is the mystery of the gospel. He is the one who also reveals the mystery as well. As we go through these verses and as we start understanding the plan of God, we're going to see how Paul fits into this mystery, fits into this proclamation of the mystery to the Ephesians as part of God's plan. So let's look at verse 7 together as we start seeing how God calls his servants. It says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Here we get an insight on how God calls his servants. This word minister here, which Paul uses to describe himself, it can mean a servant or an agent. A messenger is a good description of what this word means. Paul is reminding us that he's not a servant just of the Ephesians. He's not a servant of his country. He is a servant of God. And what's interesting about Paul's life is that we can actually trace back his service to his salvation. Turn to Acts chapter 9 for just a moment. 
In Acts 9, we see the Damascus Road conversion. It's probably one of the most popular accounts of a salvation in the Bible. We see that Paul, we know that he was a persecutor back when he was Saul and he was persecuting the church and it says literally breathing out threats against them. He was so overwhelmed with persecuting them that it was as he was threatening them as much as he was breathing. And we see that as Jesus speaks to Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So during this conversion, Jesus tells him, well, go to the city and talk to this guy named Ananias. He's going to show you what you need to do next. What's really interesting about this narrative in terms of Paul's ministry is not what God says to Paul. It's about what God says to Ananias because the Lord speaks to Ananias and he says, I want you to talk to this guy named Saul, who would later be called Paul. And Ananias says, well, I don't want to talk to that guy because I've heard that if you talk to him, it's probably going to put you in prison if you're a Christian. And so he didn't want to go right up to this guy. But look at what the Lord says in verse 15. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. From Acts 9, we see Paul has been set apart for service to be a special instrument of the Lord to proclaim his gospel. But also look at verse 16. It says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Not only was Paul called to service, Paul was called to suffering as well. We're going to see that through the rest of our passage today. That Paul was called to this service and to suffering for our Lord Jesus Christ. So this comes all the way back from Acts 9. If you look at Romans 1.1 for just a moment, at the beginning of this letter, Paul calls himself, he says, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There we see again, Paul has this ministry, this chosen service, not just to the people he's writing to, but to God, he's an apostle of God, which apostle literally means messenger, and of the gospel of God. So Paul's service is tied here to the gospel. His life was set apart for this work. It wasn't just a job or a vocation. It was his life. It reminds me of what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It doesn't mean that everyone is called to vocational ministry where you quit your job and all you do is share the gospel. It does mean that everyone is called to some type of service of Jesus Christ in whatever context you are in. So we see how Paul is called to service and to suffering here. He was a minister. Notice also it says he's a minister of the gospel. My Bible says of this gospel I was made a minister. So his service is tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also according to the gift of God's grace. Paul didn't take any credit for his ministry. He didn't take any pride in what he was doing. It was a gift of God. This is one of the things that I think sets apart Paul as a writer here in the New Testament. One of the things that he often will speak of is not how good he is, is not how much he is set apart, but how he has weakness. He will often describe his own 
physical and spiritual weakness to us as we read his letters. Paul's service, though, belongs to God, and it was a gift of God by grace. He considered it not a duty, but a privilege to share the gospel and to minister to people. Then it says, which was given to me by the working of his power. So his position was from God by his grace. And then his ability to do the ministry was through the working of God's power. Paul's going to use two words here that describe working or function. Working here means the state of being active or operating. So it's this active power. And then power here is the capacity to function. When you put those two words together, you see that Paul has a vibrant ability to do what God has called him to do. It doesn't mean he can do whatever he wants, but if God has called Paul to do something, Paul has the power from God to do it. But remember, this is all because of God's grace. It's not because Paul was special. It's because he was set apart by God. He then will go on to talk about himself in verse 8. It says, To me, though I am the least of all saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul remarks here again how he was not qualified to serve the Lord. In fact, he says, I am the very least of all saints. And it's harder to see in English than it is in Greek, the language this was written in. What Paul is saying here is not just that he's the least, but literally it could be translated the least of the least. Of all the people who could be the least... Paul is the very least. That's what he's trying to show us here. This is how he regards himself. He says, I didn't get this job because I was the best qualified, but this grace was given to me, even though I don't count myself as anything worth noting. Then it says this grace was given. And it again shows us something interesting about God's grace in the book of Ephesians. God's grace was not just something that saves us, even though it does. We know from Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. But grace also applies to other aspects of our life. It's by the grace of God that we can sit here this morning. It's by the grace of God that we've been created. It's by the grace of God that we're able to drive here. It's by the grace of God that Paul could serve Jesus Christ as a servant. Then we see his mission, and we're going to see two different purposes for Paul as a servant. The first is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This function shows his preaching or his proclaiming ministry. And it's not just like formal preaching like what I'm doing. Even though we know Paul did address crowds and he spoke in synagogues and he did debate with people publicly, it also can refer to his private ministry of just sharing the gospel with people. In whatever context he was in and in whatever way he needed to do it, Paul would proclaim the gospel to those people who needed to hear it. But notice, it's not just Paul proclaiming whatever he wants to say. It's Paul proclaiming the gospel. And it's important for us to remember that. Sometimes when you give someone a platform, a place to speak, they just want to start talking about whatever they want. Paul's mission was not just so people could hear his stories. It wasn't just so people could hear his political opinions. It was so that people could hear the gospel. That was the focus of his ministry. 
So this was one of his purposes, to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. This word unsearchable has been used a couple times in Ephesians already. It means it cannot be measured. There's no way you could possibly measure the riches of Christ. There's no system that you could use to account for it. It's called the immeasurable riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Imagine having so much money that you couldn't even count it all. There's no way that you could account for it. And we're all sitting here thinking, well, we can't imagine that. We can't account for how much money we have. And we all wish we had a little bit more, right? The unsearchable riches of Christ don't just refer to any, it doesn't refer to any monetary value, but rather the riches that are ours talked about in Ephesians. Paul calls them the spiritual blessings that come from God. It was Paul's mission to proclaim these to the Gentiles. Then in verse 9 it says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for the ages in God, who creates all things. Paul's ministry was not just to proclaim the gospel, which he did. It was also to show people this plan of God. He uses a word here for bring to light, which is photosai in Greek. It's the same root that we get for photos in English. It means to shine light on something. You know, with the picture, you're shining light, you're snapping a photo of something. With this word, it means to expose something by using lights. When when you see the light on something, it gives you a new picture, a new idea of what something means. Sometimes our dogs like to wake us up at night at our house. Sometimes when they wake us up at night, I will let one of them out, and I'll just let you see behind the curtain. If Alicia's dog Pepper goes out, she usually just goes out there and does what she needs to do and comes back in. If Matt goes out with Pepper... He thinks he hears something outside. Now, I'm convinced he just is hearing things, and he doesn't actually see anything that he should be worried about. But when he hears something, he starts barking. And, of course, it's like 2, 3 in the morning. We've got neighbors and people that are outside. Nevertheless, I want to get back to sleep as well. My wife is asleep while this is going on. So I say, Mac, quit. Come back inside. And he's like, no, I hear something. And so he starts running around and barking at things. And so what do I do? I flash on the lights so that he can see what's going on in the yard. When I turn on the lights, sometimes what he will find is that it's not a person or not a monster. There's a little rabbit that's gotten into our yard, and he sees it, and then all of a sudden he wants to chase it around the yard until the rabbit gets out. And it shows, it casts a new light on what he can see. Now, if he can't see what it is, he's barking, he's cowering in fear, he has no idea what he should do, Then once he can realize, oh, this is a rabbit that I could chase around, he gets really excited and starts chasing it. Paul's proclamation here was to share the gospel, but to also expose, to cast a light on the plan of God. Now, why does this plan need revealed? Why does he need to explain it to people? Well, because we see in verse 9, it is a mystery hidden for the ages. And we looked last week on what mystery means throughout Scripture something that God knows. It's a secret hidden by God in ages past. In the Old Testament, it was not fully revealed yet. It was hidden by God. Now in Christ, it has been revealed first to Paul and the apostles and the early church, but his mission was to what? Expose this plan for the rest of the people to understand. He's going to explain to them this mystery which is hidden for the ages, and it says it's hidden in God. 
And it brings up a good point that God is the one who has the secrets. There's no secrets hidden from God. I can remember as a kid thinking that I had told a lie or I'd kept a secret and I thought, no one knows about it. And then I stopped and think and thought, well, God knows about it. He knows what I'm thinking right now. And then I thought, is there any way you could keep a secret from God? These are the profound thoughts I had when I was six or seven. And I thought, well, if I was going to keep a secret from God, I'd have to keep it from myself as well, which is impossible to do. So I just gave up after that. But it shows us that God is the one who keeps secrets. There's nothing hidden from him. And if he wants it to be revealed, he's going to reveal it to us. God, through Jesus Christ, has revealed to us what? The gospel. But there's other things we don't understand fully that God has not revealed to us or that we just can't fully understand that we may not understand until we get to heaven. For instance, who here could give me a full theological definition of the Trinity and how that all works and how they all function together? How you can have one God and three persons? Well, I can't. I don't know if anyone else could either fully explain how the Trinity works. When we read in Revelation, there's things revealed to John that he writes down. There's some things that God tells him not to write down and that we're not going to understand until they happen. How many of us are going to understand all the different aspects of the tribulation and the things going on on the earth? Well, you know, Lord willing, we've been raptured and we're with Jesus and don't have to worry about that. God is the one who has all the secrets, who knows all the mysteries. He reveals them to us through Jesus Christ and those who proclaim his word. And what gives God the qualification to do this? Well, Paul tells us. He says, in God who created all things. It's interesting when you read the Old Testament, especially in some of the prophets or in Job, it will remind us that God created all things. And when we want to question God, God's response is usually, well, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I set up the foundations of the earth? Oh, yeah, you weren't born yet. You weren't even thought of at that point. You know, who are we to give counsel or to give advice to God? Now, there's sometimes some of us think, well, if I could tell God how to do things, I would tell him that we should do this. Or, you know, I know that my wife would tell God not to have any wasps on the earth at all. But yet... Who knows the mind of the Lord, as Paul says in Romans? Who has been his counselor? For of him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is the one who has this mystery. It's hidden in the ages. Part of Paul's ministry was to reveal this plan to people in the world. And so we can trust the plan of God. His plan includes calling his servants. He calls a servant Paul. To be an apostle, to be a minister, to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And it's not because Paul had this great ability. It's not because he had all these talents. Remember, he says, I am the least of all saints. But yet God called him to the ministry that he'd planned him to be in. And it reminds us as Christians, you know, God may not be calling you to quit your job and to sell your house and all the, possession, all the possessions you have and go serve him in a distant, remote country. He may be calling you to do that. I don't know, but I don't think that yet. But he has called us to serve him. And there's some things he's called us to do that we don't really want to do, that we don't really like. We don't really know how we're going to have the strength to do it. And we remember what Paul writes here. 
that this ministry was given to him by the grace of God, and God is the one working. God is the one giving him the ability to do these things. It's not something that Paul could do on his own. It's a gift of God. And so it's an encouragement for us today, if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, to serve the Lord. And again, this may not require us to take drastic life steps. Maybe it does. But it does require us to start asking ourselves this question when we make decisions. Does this align with God's will? Is this something that God wants me to do? Now, when we ask ourselves that, it's interesting. Sometimes we think about God's will and it's this mysterious you know, voice that we hear. It's this dream that we get. And we think, well, I don't know if I'm following the will of God because I've not had this vision from God that tells me what to do. Well, I don't think that's how God tells us his will. Sometimes we just knock our heads together and think, how do I know that I'm following God's will? And I think the answer is simple. What has God said in his word? How do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know what he, how he wants me to live? I can read God's word and it tells me. It shows me how he wants me to live. It shows me what he wants me to do. And so that becomes the question. Is what I'm doing aligning with the word of God? I can tell you this. If you think it's God's will for your life to go and sin, it's not God's will. And you say, well, I heard this voice or this person told me this was God's will. Well, they're lying to you. That's not God's will. Because God's will, it literally says in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God for your life. What? Your sanctification. To be holy, to abstain from sin. How do we know God's will? We look in God's word, we read God's word, and we allow it to transform our life. And so many times we focus on, well, my decision doesn't really, it's not really found in God's word. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it is a matter of, is this sinful? Is this something that the Bible has specifically told me not to do? And once we get past that, when it is a true gray area or questioning what it is that God wants us to do, I don't think we have to rack our heads together thinking, well, is this really God's will? We can pray about it. We can read God's word. We can walk in the spirit. We can get good counsel. If we still, after all of that, feel like this is what God has called us to do, I don't think he's going to lead us astray. Paul was called by the will of God to be a servant. And my encouragement to us this morning is that as we think about God's will, as we think about serving the Lord, we should go back to God's word and make sure we're walking with him as we should. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Some translations say, which is your reasonable service. Some say it's your spiritual worship. So how do I serve the Lord? How do I know that I'm worshiping him like I should? Well, I'm having a transformed life. How do we do that? By not becoming like the world, being transformed through the word of God and living distinct, living differently. So we should, as believers, understand that God calls his servants and then submit in our life to serving the Lord as he's called us to, to living as he's called us to live in Scripture. Secondly, God not only calls us servants, God displays his glory. God displays his glory. What we're going to see from these next few verses is part of the plan of God and how God's plan ultimately leads him 
to glorify himself. It's a question that comes up with, how do I know if I'm making the right decision? Are my decisions going to lead to the glory of God? And so let's look at verse 10 together in chapter 3. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known, or might, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We see here that the purpose of God's plan involves the church. The word for church is ecclesia. It means an assembly. The called out ones, the people who assemble together. As you look at that word, it, for me, says that while there may be some Sundays you have to miss church because you're sick or you've got an emergency or something else that comes up, a church is not just online. And while we live stream our services, we can record them. You can watch other pastors preaching from other churches, and they could be really good speakers. They could have something really good to say. You're not going to church when you're doing that. When you go to church, it means you're joining an assembly of people who are together, who have assembled for the purpose of hearing God's word preached for fellowship, for looking at the ordinances and all the different things that are composed of a church. And I bring that up to say that the assembled church is part of the plan of God. This plan of God that exposes, that displays the manifold wisdom of God. What does that mean, the manifold wisdom of God? Your Bible might say the multifaceted or diverse wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom means to be many-sided. In the Old Testament, a similar idea of this word is found in Joseph's coat of many colors. It has all these different dimensions or colors or sides to it. This shows us that there's many parts to God's wisdom. Just like a diamond, as we look in it and as we see all the different angles of it, you can look at all these angles and see a new aspect of it, a new facet of it. And as you look at the wisdom of God, you realize that we're not fully going to grasp it in our earthly bodies, in our physical life. There's so many different dimensions to his plan. One example is as you read through the Old Testament, you see what you think is the purpose of God. Through the stories, you see his providence, his provision, his sovereignty played out in the lives of the Old Testament saints. Then you read the New Testament, and you start seeing how the plan of God not only provided for his people in the Old Testament, how it also led to Christ being born, and for him to be born and live and die for us and our sins. So the wisdom of God is multifaceted. There's many parts to it. There's many different angles of it. There's many different sides to it. And one example, another example of that would be, why did God save humanity? And the answer is simple. Well, because he loves us. And that's true. John 3.16, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son to die for our sins so that because he loves us so that we could be saved. But we also see other purposes for God sending Jesus as well. He saved us so that we could be a people for his own possession. He saved us to unite all things in him. He saved us to be transformed into his workmanship, into the image of his son. He saved us for his glory. All this is saying that there's many different parts to the wisdom of God. What Paul is showing us here is that the church exists 
to display the wisdom of God, to put it on display, to show other people God's wisdom. And so how do we do this? How do we display God's wisdom as a church? How do we display God's wisdom as Christians? Well, I believe it's by being transformed. It's by living the Christian life and being distinct from the world. If you can remember when you were unsaved, maybe you were younger like me and you were saved as a child and you didn't have a rap sheet, you didn't have a you know, mug shot or anything, but you were just a normal kid who one day after church realized that you were a sinner and needed to be saved and you were saved at that moment and you lived a pretty good life after that. Or maybe you have a more dramatic testimony of you were saved at a later point in life and you can remember your sin and you can remember how you did rebel against God. And either way, either kind of testimony that you have, it is evident from Scripture that without the saving work of Jesus we would not be where we are today. We would not be able to be free from sin. And before we're saved, we see from Ephesians that we're slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't have any control over what we do. We are enslaved to our sin. But through the gospel, we've now been changed. We can now start walking in the Spirit. We can show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, And as we do these things, people start noticing a difference. One of my favorite things to see is when there's a Christian person that's working somewhere and I meet one of their coworkers and I say, well, I think you know my friend so-and-so, they work at your job. And the person responds by saying, yes, they're such a sweet person. They just have this joy that I can't describe. They just have this peace. It's almost like it passes all understanding. They just have been so generous to me. They just have a love for me and for my family that I've never understood before. And they say, I don't know what's different about that person. As I'm standing there, I think, well, I do. It's because they've been saved. It's because they have a new life in Christ. And that should be an encouragement to us of this, that we don't want to leave the wrong impression. I'm not trying to say that we need to be in this legalistic Christianity that's focused on standards. But if I talk to your employee and I said, yeah, I know this person, I think they work with you. And they say, oh, that person, they go to church. Really? They're the grumpiest person I've ever met. I don't, I didn't realize that they love the Lord. You know, they've just been hateful to me since I've been working with them. So it encourages us to make sure we're displaying that we're living out our testimony to other people in the world. Again, not in a legalistic way, but in a way that shows what Christ has done in us that makes people ask what is so different about us and we display this not only to people on earth but it's interesting if you keep reading it says so that the church might display the manifold wisdom of god to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places we've seen these words used before rulers and authorities refer to spiritual beings angels and demonic spirits as well now you say well they wouldn't be in heaven Well, the heavenly places refer more to the spiritual realm here than they do to like heaven itself. It's more of that spiritual realm. And the church puts on display the wisdom of God to the angelic realm as well. Now, it's not just for the purpose of them, but what I think Paul is saying is the church should be so different, so distinct from the world that even the angels and the demons can look at the church and realize that they have been saved and that they have been changed. This displays the wisdom of God. 
And we see how this fits into the plan of God. It says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, it connects us back to the plan of God. And as we've seen in Ephesians, the plan of God is not just temporary, it's eternal. It was all the way back in eternity past. As God has planned out time, this is an eternal purpose. But look, it says that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God planned all these things to happen, but yet they come into fruition through Jesus Christ. So we, we this morning can trust the plan of God, recognizing that God will always display his glory. Sometimes even after we're saved, we always think about how do things affect me, us, my life? How could God get any glory out of this because it doesn't seem like it's good for me? Well, sometimes we have to realize that God's not just concerned about our happiness. God's not just concerned about what's best for us. God's concerned about what gives him the most glory. And even through that, yes, we will be blessed. We will be encouraged by the Lord. We start realizing that our happiness and well-being is not the ultimate concern of God. But his top priority is to glorify himself and to spread the gospel here on earth. Sometimes God's plan does not always make sense to us. We question, well, how could God get glory from something so tragic? How could God get glory from a situation that seems so bad? Well, we recognize this morning that it is God's plan, that it is his plan hidden through the ages, and that he is the one in control, and we can trust him and his purposes. Let's finally see that God encourages his saints. God encourages his saints. He speaks now of Christ in verse 12, and it says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So speaking of Jesus, Paul is now showing us that because we've been saved, we have a different relationship with him. We no longer have to live in fear. We no longer have to live estranged from him. We now have, and he uses three words. The first one is boldness. Boldness. We no longer have to live in a shaking fear of God, wondering when he's going to zap us. We now have a boldness to approach God. And this word literally means to speak without constraint or fear. It's kind of like the candidness that you can have with friends. There's some people, if you don't know them very well, you're afraid of what you're going to say. If you're going to say something that maybe offends them or that embarrasses you. If you're with your friends, though, you're a little bit looser. You maybe don't think about what you say quite as much. Now, this doesn't mean that when we pray, we can just, you know, say whatever we want or just speak totally, you know, perversely or anything. But it shows us that we no longer have that restriction with God. We can come to him. We can be honest about our problems and our issues and have the confidence through our faith to approach his throne room. A similar word that's used secondly is access. This is a lack of restraint in what's being said and an ability to speak to God. It's the ability to actually present our prayers to the Lord. We're not like the Catholics. We don't have to go to confession when we need to confess sin. We have access to God through Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. The last word is confidence. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have no fear. 
We have confidence in Christ to approach God. In light of all this, Paul brings us to verse 13, and he gets to his point. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. His encouragement to them is because we know that God's will is perfect, that's always going to lead to him glorifying himself, because we know that Paul has been called to be a servant of God, to both serve him and to suffer for him, as they think about his situation now, they should not be discouraged. And this would be hard for the Ephesians to do. They had a close relationship with Paul. They loved him. We talked about in the book of Acts how they mourned for him as he left them. How Paul couldn't even go to the church of Eph- to, to the city of Ephesus because he knew it would be hard for himself to leave. These people were closely bonded to Paul, and they hated the idea of him being in prison. It was probably leading to them being discouraged. So Paul takes them all the way here to say, look, you know God's will is perfect. You know what he's called me to, to serve and to suffer for him. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. We know that God's plan is perfect. They should not lose heart in what he is suffering for them. It shows them that Paul's suffering is for the Lord. It's also for them so that they could live, so that they could function as a church in the midst of opposition as well. He finally says, which is your glory. Paul's suffering would lead to the glory of God as he continued to share the gospel with Gentiles. It would lead to them glorifying God as well in their life. It just reminds us as we think about the plan of God, we can find encouragement in him, realizing that he's the one who has called us. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he who called you is faithful. Our confidence in suffering is not found in ourselves. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we conclude our sermon this morning, we want to ask ourselves three final questions. Three final questions. How do I know that I'm trusting God's plan? First of all, are you serving God submissively? Are you serving God submissively? Are you submissive to what he's called you to do? You say, well, how do I know what he's called me to do? Again, read God's word. Study it. Look for how God has called us to live, what he has called us to do. Serve God submissively. Secondly, ask yourself the question, are you being transformed by God's grace? Is your life something that is being displayed for others to see the grace and strength of God? And then finally, are you being encouraged by Christ? Through the Christian life, as we face discouragement, as we face trials and adversity, it can be be easy to feel discouraged and down. Are you being encouraged by Jesus Christ during those times? Are you going to him in prayer, asking him to help you? Let's pray as we close the sermon this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've inspired Paul to write this book for us of Ephesians. We thank you for the mystery of the gospel, how you and each one of our lives who are here this morning have revealed the gospel to us so that we could know you and have a relationship with you. We pray now that as we close the service that we would live lives that are 
dedicated to you and how you've called us to live. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.